So, before we begin this afternoon, I'd like to, for our new guest, to introduce herself. She's come here by invitation. This is Kim Roberts. Would you, Kim, Kim, would you like to just say a couple of words about yourself? Please. Uh, there's a microphone coming. Hello. Thank you. I wasn't expecting an introduction. I was trying to hide in the corner. Thank you for letting me join your very quiet and spacious group. I, I feel immediately when I come into the space the uh, depth of practice that's happening here. So thank you for letting me join you. Yeah, and who are you? <laughs> I've just arrived at um, Tanyakura as the new director of yoga programs. And I'll be teaching some retreats here, some programs and classes at the sports center, as well as probably some surprises. So, um, And I'm, I'm here because I am trying to uh, benefit from Alan's presence here and learn uh, what he is uh, teaching in this space. So You're very welcome here, Kim. Glad you've been come. Uh, Kim is kind of an embodiment of what part of the vision for Tanyapura altogether, and that is that we don't simply have a really cool school and a really marvelous sports center and then a really nice mind center, but really beginning the synergy. And I think that swell, that momentum is beginning now. And uh, Kim is one of the movers and shakers in that movement, so very glad you can join us. So, right now, very briefly, for your edification, of course, you're in midstream. We're now in the, um, in the within the last final final three weeks of our eight-week retreat, and over the last week or two, we've been focusing on the four measurables in the morning and the various modes of the shamatha practices in the afternoon for the first more or less uh, four weeks, we inverted that. Shamat was in the morning, four measurables in the afternoon. So this morning we focused on loving kindness. This afternoon we return to the practice of anapanasati, or mindfulness of breathing. And we'll be focusing again on this classic Theravada approach, practiced for many centuries and very effectively, focusing on the sensations of the breath at the nostrils. Now, again, I find context is so important that I'd like to use the zoom lens to go to wide angle just for a little bit. And that is when we look at the practice of settling the mind in this natural state, observing thoughts, images, and so forth. The easiest pitfall, or the most likely pitfall, most prevalent way to err in such practice is to be sitting there perhaps in a really bakka asana, sitting very straight, very looking very good on the outside, and what you're practicing on the inside is, what a day for a daydream. You know, the mind is wandering off, wandering off, but boy, you look really good on the outside. The mind is caught in rumination, caught in rumination. You know what you should be doing, but it's hard because the thoughts are sticky, the memories are sticky, and especially those that are emotionally charged are all the stickier, and they tend to suck us in and the cognitive fusion takes place. So just yesterday and today, I've been in email correspondence with some of our wonderful researchers at University of California, Davis, who are still crunching the data and coming out with one paper after another based on the Shamata project four years ago. That's when the 22 terabytes of data were collected. And interestingly enough, one of the findings from a very, very sharp uh, researcher there, I think she's a postdoc at this point, 
is that uh, while mindfulness of breathing was just generally really helpful in so many different ways, and it turns out to have an impact on cortisol levels, really good impact, and mindfulness of breathing very good for overcoming the old tendency of kind of knee-jerk reactivity to emotions, thoughts, and so forth. So very healthy. But quite interestingly, she found in some cases, based upon self-report and perhaps some other third-person measures, Settling the mind in this natural state could could actually be, in some cases, it can actually be detrimental. That is, make you more reactive, more caught up, more knee-jerk, reactive to emotions, thoughts, memories, and so forth. Now, how would that happen? Because, you know, when data comes up, when data has come up, you, you don't flinch and say, oh, we don't like that kind of data. That, that, that's not Buddhist. That's, that's anti-Buddhist data. You know? Can't go there. Can't go there. So we have to face the facts. That's what the Dalai Lama's been telling us. That's what the scientists tell us. I'm totally for that. So how would that happen? Well, I would suggest that insofar as you really, in that practice, you are resting like that, like that falcon kiting into the wind. You're resting right there in the immediacy of the present moment. Thoughts, images, memories, fantasies, emotion, desires coming up coming up, but you're unmoved by them, you're clearly attending to them, not dissociating, not withdrawing, not getting fused in them, I'm very confident that will not have a downside of increasing reactivity. It doesn't make any sense. However, as we all know, it's very easy to do that practice somewhat sloppily, and out of 24 minutes, maybe spend 15 minutes in just getting caught up, caught up, caught up, in which case we are, in fact, how do you say, Rather than do, and performing an expedition, getting our feet unstuck from an old rut, we're actually going deeper into the rut, and that could make us more reactive. So I think that was a very good, how do we say, a, a, a word of wisdom to the wise, or something like that. Um, that is, a word of warning to the wise is sufficient. And that is, if we're doing the settling the mind, it's important to do it well. doesn't mean doing it perfectly, because that's why we have nine stages of development along the path of shamatha. Uh, but it's important not to make a habit of doing it in a sloppy fashion. It could actually be detrimental. Right? And I mentioned in this correspondence going back and forth, very cordial and, and learning things, as I think the scientific team continues to learn from me, coming from the meditative background, is that I commonly, and I have been doing this for years, have been encouraging people before they really venture into settling the mind in its natural state to get really grounded. You know this, you've heard it so many times now. Mellow, grounded, relaxed, at ease, calm, the sheer volume of obsessive, compulsive thinking subsiding. So getting quite grounded in that through mindfulness of breathing as a prerequisite. And then insofar as you get those nice qualities of relaxation and stability out of settling, out of mindfulness of breathing, then you're primed to slip right over into settling the mind and it can go quite well. I remember just recently one of you commenting just how seamless that can be and how satisfying. And then when engaging in settling the mind, it's spacious, can even be joyous. Um, so all kinds of good things can come up. So there's a sequence there. But once again, the most prevalent pitfall or way to err in the practice of settling the mind is basically just getting caught up in daydream, rumination. Right? Then we go to awareness of awareness, and there I would say the most common error that can be become again become a habit is just sitting there blank. Like, okay, I'm not attending any, any object. That should be enough. 
just kind of zoning out, you know, and then not knowing anything, in which case not knowing is avidya. Vidya means knowing, avidya is not knowing. So now I'm practicing avidya. Mm, practicing the root of samsara. When I keep that engine running, who knows, it might you know, get a little bit squeaky and run down, but I'll keep it going. I will practice awareness of awareness, except for not be aware of being aware. So that's the, um, you know, that's the pitfall of that. And so, we come back to this really foundational practice of mindfulness of breathing. And how does that go astray? How does that air fall off track? Well, so I think it was uh, one of you over here mentioned quite early on in the retreat the great fusion of distraction and dullness, you know, the great union of I'm both distracted and dull at the same time. You know? It's not an easy job, but you know, some of us can accomplish it. And so that's one of the ways, and that is, it's you know, the breath is just not that interesting, and so we kind of lose interest. The novelty wears off pretty quickly. And so, okay, yeah, another breath is coming. Yeah, I kind of figured that one was going to happen. Yeah, it did. Yeah, surprise, you know. And because it's so boring, and when it's kind of just slipping down, then the mind, in this, you know, the, with this unslakeable thirst for entertainment and novelty, starts to entertain itself. And that's where the distraction comes in. So we're dull, we're bored out of our gourds with the, with the breathing, but at least we have a little bit of entertainment from rumination. You know, and then we have the great union of distracted mind and dullness. Ha, da da, you know, non-duality. <laughs> and so, how do we move out of that lethargic, distracted, agitated mm. problem in the early part? Well, we need two different antidotes because they are in fact different problems. The, the restlessness, the agitation, the Inability to sit still, for the mind to be still and to be content in that. What does that require? Well, there's too much, too much energy there, too much kinetic energy, too much buzzy energy there. And so for that, to overcome the distraction part of it, where the mind just goes blah, 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 blah for the whole session, and it's just background noise, right? For that, it is relaxation, it always comes back to relaxation. Releasing that energy, releasing it, releasing it, not bottling it up, not frowning at it, not pressing down harder, you know, just persistently. I call it, I remember in one of the retreats, people would come to me and during the week, weekly meeting and say, I'd say, how are you doing? And they'd say, great, great. And so then I, after a while, I tell, started telling them, well, I want you to be great. I want you to be great. And that is gently release, release, gently release excess accumulated tension. G-R-E-A-T. That's a really good baseline. And you know how to do it by now. You know it very well. It's that exhalation. And it's that end of the exhalation. And that sweet spot at the very end of exhalation where you continue to release. And you continue to release even as the breath is coming in. As if if you're being somebody really, really generous with someone. And you're just offering and offering and offering. And even while you're still offering, they start to give you back. You know, oh, oh, okay. So you didn't have to reach out and take it. They just start throwing stuff in your lap. You know, you're giving, giving, and then you find out, oh, my lap is full. So even as you're releasing the breath, then it just kind of flows in, unbidden, untaken, just flowing in. And in that sweet spot, that utter release at the end of the out-breath, that's where you can go into deep relaxation and really let go of that residual, frenetic, agitated energy 
that's underlying the fizziness of the mind and the blah, 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 boring rumination. So there's an antidote for that. We really can quiet the mind, but it's by releasing the underlying energy and not by stamping on it. And then there's the aspect of it just being boring, you know, just uninteresting. And for that, attending closely. Attending closely. Now it comes, it's easier to do up here at the sensations, at the sensations of the breath, at the nostrils, because as your whole system calms down, settles into a deeper and deeper state of equilibrium, the sensations, of course, do become subtler. And then, if you remain engaged, that does enhance the vividness of attention. And at, for whatever it is, whether it's watching leaves blowing in the wind, whether it's watching a sunset, whether it's watching, watching waves watch up on shore, or the flames in a fireplace, whatever it is, or just moving a finger, just moving a finger like little increments. I haven't done this for a long time, but I had a retreat about 30 years ago, up at um, what, Donna Center in, up in England, northern England. I just had people move their finger for like one hour in little increments, like little tiny increment, and then stop, and then move your finger, a stop, and then move a little bit, stop, move a little bit, stop, and then and now you can open it up again, you know, straight now, and you know had just people doing these micro movements, and lo and behold, they didn't get bored by moving a finger, you know, because the vividness was there. That you could see, ah, even when it's still, it's not still. And then when it moves, how did it move? That was volition, but how did my volition connect with the muscles in the finger? And what's it feel like when the, mo when the body, when the finger is in motion? And what's it like when it stops being in motion? And now I think it's about to start again. You know, when you bring that precision, that clarity, the vividness, the high resolution of attention, nothing's boring. If you can sit there and move your finger and stop and not be bored, you have pretty much have got a good inoculation anti-boredom, anti-boredom injection, right? Or for that matter, if you can just simply watch your breath for an hour and not be bored for 24 minutes or what have you. So attending closely, and once again, these two remedies for the restlessness, the rumination on the one hand, the dullness and the boredom on the other hand, they converge on the, the breathing, they converge on the out-breath, they converge on the end of the out-breath, where it takes some real subtlety, as you well know now, that total release of control, that total release of control, releasing all intervention, regulation, preference, while attending closely. That's subtle. And to be able to really do that, uh, that takes a real subtlety of awareness, and that will arouse the interest. So, so, it's a good baseline. With this settling the mind in this natural state, we all know that there's this whole gradation of grasping. It's not just are you doing it or not, but how much are you doing? How much grasping is slipping in? Was I just observing that thought or was I kind of participating in it? Was that, that did that thought prolong as I wanted it to or just it happened by itself? Those are questions it's hard to give a definitive answer to because of the subtlety of all the gradations of grasping, right? And likewise with awareness of awareness, you're sitting there quietly, are you really clearly aware of being aware? Are you imagining being aware? Are you thinking about it being aware? Are you just sitting there like a stump? You know, not much of aware of anything. It's subtle. It's subtle. And so it's a, these are two good subtleties. These are good challenges to take on. But sometimes it's just go back. It's good to go back to baseline. Go back to a good old formal, old-fashioned practice of shamatha 
where you're kind of on the breath or you're not. You know, you can either count one to ten or you can't. You know, or one to twenty-one. Are you the, I mean, that's kind of binary. Can you count twenty-one breaths without losing count or not? Okay, that's a yes or no answer. That's not too subtle. And so coming back to the breathing is something of a bit of a reality check. You know, one might think, oh, I'm doing so well in settling the mind, I'm doing really well in awareness, oh, but of course I can't count ten breaths in succession. <laughs> you know? Or I remember, I'm going to keep this so vague, you would have no idea who I'm, re- who I'm referring to. But there was a fellow who was in- engaging in a long-term shamatha project, a shamatha retreat, not shamatha project, shamatha retreat. And uh, he came to the, the teacher, well into the retreat, and he said, my practice is going very well. His shamatha practice is going very, very well. Stability is not getting any better, but the shamatha is really going well. So, in your dreams, maybe, you know. So, it didn't kind of get it, because if the stability is not getting better, shamatha is not happening, right? So, the mindfulness of breathing is just a good, honest, straightforward, like a really good friend who's always speaks to you honestly, never gives you diplomatic manipulative talk to try to please you or whatever, just straight honesty. Mindfulness of breathing is like that. It's good, honest practice. Good to come back to. So in that regard, now that we're following this classic, returning to the classic Theravada approach taught by Buddha Gosa, of attending the sensations, the preliminary sign, the tactile sensations of breath, eventually giving rise to the acquired sign, finally when you achieve shamatha, the counterpart sign. So you're familiar with all that. At the same time, I've learned mindfulness of breathing in the Tibetan tradition. I remember oh, studying from the Abhidhamma. I was studying one uh, commentary by Gawagendran Duba, fifth, fifth, no, the first Dalai Lama, his commentary to Abhidhamma Kosha. He teaches mindfulness of breathing. There was no reference to acquired sign. There's no reference to counterpart sign. No reference to attending to just focusing there on the apertures of the nostrils. Nowhere there. Brilliant. Brilliant. Brilliant scholar, great adept. And, and drawing from the classic treatise of Vasubandhu from the 4th or 5th century. But no reference to that. And then this afternoon I got a little bit curious just to go back and, and read again a translation I did about 25 years ago from the Sanskrit and Tibetan, and that is Asanga, who is pretty close to a contemporary of Buddha Gosa, 5th, 4th century. Oh, his writings are mindfulness breathing. So I was just reviewing it. Just reviewing it. I think it's good to give, have something of a breath so we don't think there's only one way because the Theravada way I have a lot of competence in. So this is not detracting from that at all. At the same time, while Buddha Gosa is like one of those great towering peaks in the Theravada tradition, Olasanga is a pretty towering peak in the Mayana tradition. Great adept. Incredible scholar. So both of these men speak with tremendous authority, but they do say somewhat different things. So in his Shravakabhumi, his stages, stages of the Shravakas, past to individual liberation, he gives a detailed description of the mindfulness of breathing. A couple of things that was quite interesting about it as I went and went back and reviewed my 25-year-old translation is, again, no reference to attending to the tip of the nostrils and no reference to the acquired sign or a counterpart sign. No reference whatsoever. That was interesting. What's also interesting is he speaks of coarse breath and subtle breath. And he also speaks of the, the passageway of the breath. The passageway of the breath. Well, anybody who knows almost anything about human physiology will tell you that the air you're taking in through the nostrils goes out into the lungs. And then it comes out of the lungs, comes up your throat, and comes out your mouth or your nose again. And that's it. It doesn't go any farther. 
So even though if somebody kind of punches you in the stomach and you say, oh, I got the wind knocked out of me. Well, the wind isn't really down there. The oxygen does not go down to your abdomen, down to your intestines, your stomach, your liver. It doesn't go down there. It feels like it. <coughs> but that's not air. The air only goes down to the lungs. Right? Basic physiology. But it certainly feels like it. I'm going to, it feels like I'm now going to fill my belly full of air. Ho, ho, ho. You know? <laughs> it's in full. <sighs> you know? But it's not true. But it, it feels like it. So, interestingly enough, when Asanda speaks of the passage, the track, kind of the race course, the track of the air, where's the, where's the racetrack? From the tip of the nostrils, down to the navel. Down to the navel. Right? Interesting. Well, bear in mind, one word, lung, refers to breath. It refers to air. It also refers to prana. Also refers to prana. So when we're breathing, let us simply assume the modern modern medical doctors know what they're talking about. Oxygen is taken in through the nose and through the mouth. It goes down to the lungs, and there it goes into the capillaries and so forth. And you know, but the skin does not breathe. I just checked that out just to make sure. The skin, the pores in the skin, do not take in oxygen. It's a common belief. Tracing back to 1964, Goldfinger, the lady who got, got her old body painted with gold paint and she died because her skin couldn't breathe. Really good in science fiction, but it's not medical fact. The skin does not breathe in, out. Oxygen, uh, it's, that's not what happens. Okay? So there we are. All of this is very, very good third-person physiology. And there's an enormous amount of truth in that as there is an enormous amount of truth that the amygdala, the hippocampus, frontal cortex, and so forth, are correlated with very specific mental processes, which will not be so readily accessible by just practicing shamatha or vipassana. But again, there are two, two sides of the coin. There are so many aspects of the mind you can readily access by meditating. You don't get to the brain. Aspects of brain activity you don't readily get through meditating. So I'm actually quite a firm believer in third-person physiology, I have a lot of respect for Western medicine, saves countless lives every single year, but I also have a lot of respect for first-person physiology, where we speak of chakras and nadis, prana, five major types of pranas, five secondary types of prana, and so forth, wind, bile, and phlegm, three basic humors. Well, Tibetan doctors and so forth, they're saving thousands of lives every year, also based upon first-person physiology and the medicine based upon that. Likewise, Indian Ayurvedic, Chinese traditional medicine, and so forth. So I have a lot of confidence in both. So from this perspective, what's going down to the navel chakra? Prana. You don't have to believe it's oxygen. Asanga never said oxygen goes down there. He says lung goes down there. Well, that, we can read that as energy. right? So, energy going down to the navel chakra, place of bliss, and then coming up again, down and up. There's the track, out to the tip. And of course, it goes out into air. So we breathe out. Interestingly enough, another point of divergence between the two systems. Buddhaghosa, when he's commenting on the Buddha's teachings, breathing in and out short, one recognizes long. Breathing in and out long, one recognizes long. In and out short, one recognizes short. Attending to the whole body, one breathes in and out. Right? Remember that one. And Buddhaghosa, the Theravada tradition as a whole, says, yeah, that means the whole body of the breath. And then finally, calming the composite of the body, the 
whole system settles in a very deep state of equilibrium, right? The third one, attending to the whole body. Asanga doesn't say the whole body of the breath. He says the whole body. And then he speaks of coarse breath and subtle breath. Coarse breath and subtle breath. Coarse breath coming in through the nostrils, through the mouth, whatever you're breathing through, coming down. But then he speaks of subtle breath. And that, he says, you're taking in and out through your pores. So, there's no reason to believe that he's referring to oxygen. He didn't say oxygen. He's using a word that can be read as breath, but also can be read as energy. So he says when you're attending very subtly to the in and out breath, you will also attend to the pauses between breaths. He speaks of that at the end of out breath, end of inhalation. But also subtle breath. When you're attending to the whole body, you're actually attending to the whole body and you may be able, from a first-person perspective, to sense some type of ebb and flow of a taking in and an an emission of prana through your pores, through your skin. So that's a good challenge. It's not refuting Western medicine. And Western medicine has really not no clue about prana because it's not one of those things that, at least thus far, the chakras, the nadis, and the prana, let alone the bindus, that you can measure, that you can detect using instruments that are there able to detect only physical, quantifiable, and objective phenomena. Prana is something that can be detected. It's not simply an article of belief or faith, but it's something you detect from first-person perspective. Very much like thoughts, images, emotions, which are also invisible to all instruments of scientific technology and measurement. They can only study brain correlates, physiological correlates, but there's no instrument that can detect a metal image. Only the, the physiological correlates. So that makes it interesting that Asanga, writing again in the 4th, 5th century, he's presenting Anabhanasati, mindfulness of breathing, as a method for achieving jhana, achieving shamatha, and then in 16 phases, going right on through into Vipassana and achieving Arhatship. But he does present it clearly as a method. This is a method for achieving shamatha, achieving the first jhana, but with no reference, interestingly, to acquired sign or to counterpart sign. So, how does that work? How do you move beyond the tactile, which clearly is in the desire realm? How do you move beyond that? And how does your awareness implode? Well, practice a whole lot and find out through your own own experience. I would suspect that as the whole system is deeply calming down, you're about there on stage seven, eight, nine, the breath getting so subtle, and you're experiencing the whole body, but now it's not a visualized body. There's hardly anything tangible about it. All you're experiencing is a field of energy. And you're feeling some of the, the ebb and flow of the energy, and it just gets subtler and subtler and subtler. But no form, no imagery, no nothing, just ever increasingly subtle reverberation, wavering, extremely subtle. Until eventually, just like a butterfly taking off from a flower, having brought to such equilibrium, then the butterfly of your awareness might just take off. And go purely mental. Having gone so subtle in the tactile that it just takes off and goes in the mental. It has to disengage from the physical. It has to disengage from the sensory. But it might be a very smooth transition. So that would be worth checking out. Final point just occurred to me today, because I do have 
a long history. I don't have any expert knowledge or even anything remotely close to expert knowledge of traditional Tibetan medicine, but I did get sick a lot, especially during those first four years in India, almost sick unto death. I got a wide variety, so Dr. Dunham was able to give me a lot of different types of medicine because I just kept sick with one thing after another. Uh, and then, within about a year of my arriving there, then I served as his interpreter for many, many occasions. And so through that, and then after he saved my life, then I really wanted to try to repay his kindness, so I did some medical translations under his guidance. And then later on also. So, two books. Mm. But through that, some familiarity. Kind of definite layperson's familiarity. But more than casual. And enough to give me a lot of confidence. Number one, I'd be dead when I was 24, if I had not for Tibetan medicine. That gives you some confidence. But also seeing how many people treated, uh, I won't elaborate. But it does give me a lot of confidence in this fundamental structure rooted in Indian Ayurvedic medicine, and then flowing right from there, from India up to Tibet, to traditional Tibetan medicine, of these three so-called humors, wind, bile, phlegm. And that people are predominant in one or more of them. Many people are prom- 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 prominent in like combo, like Wind and, uh, wind and bile. Wind, bile, phlegm. Wind, bile and wind, very, very common. I'm one of the many common in those two. Some more phlegm. So I won't go give, give a whole description of that, but phlegm, the, the kappa, pata, pitta, kappa, yeah, kappa, phlegm, I mean, don't think of snot, it's really not that. It's a little bit related, but it's a loose relationship. Phlegm, just think of it as kind of like this is a placeholder. But it's, it's the humor in the body, a disposition of the body related to the earth and water elements. Earth and water. Grounded, moist, solid, foundational. Bile is fire. And wind is kinetic energy. It's air. It's wind. It's energy. So vata pitta kappa. And most people are predominant in one or more of them. Some people, some people are really quite even in all three. It just occurred to me this afternoon, so you can try this on for size, that, for example, if one is um, a wind person, wind, wind people, like Lynn, classic wind person, quite slender, light frame, sometimes rather petite, uh, often quite quick, quickly moving, the mind's very light, very agile. Uh, such people do well, people who are wind people, uh, to be eating food that's quite grounding, carbohydrates, oils, uh, food that really gets ground, not just salads, you know, light food, but food that grounds. And likewise, to engage in exercise, it doesn't make you more agitated, you know, but more grounding, stabilizing. So overall, way of life, occupations, when people really shouldn't become Wall Street brokers, it drive them crazy, you know. They may be really good at it, but they'll probably have a heart attack by the age of 45 and the enjoyment factor diminishes really quickly that way. And so, occupation, environment also. Wind people shouldn't be in a harsh and cold climate. It exacerbates the wind. right? So environment, way of life, occupation, diet, type of exercise, and oh, type of meditation. You want to be looking for something that balances that. It's not bad to be a wind person, but you want to see that you don't go overboard getting totally dominant by lifestyle, diet, and so forth, all in wind, because then you wind up being antsy, agitated, anxious, never at rest, really burning yourself out. Right? So among these three modes of shamatha that we're exploring over these eight weeks, when people, 
people with very light minds, quick minds, often speak quite quickly, move quite quickly, often fairly light frames, angular features, bony. Oh, those people are really good to get grounded. Grounded. Balance that out. Get back to ground. Get back to the infirmary. Back to earth element. Mindfulness of breathing. Really, really good. Really good. The Buddha spoke of different types of dispositions. He said there are people, some people, 2,500 years ago, you remember this, 2,500 years ago in classical India, rural India, he said some people are very strong in compulsive ideation. Vikalpa, vikalpa. Lots of rumination, blah, 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 the mind. Not everybody, but some people have that. Oh, those people, he said, oh, you should practice mindfulness of breathing. That's the only one, in fact, of all the 40 different techniques of shamatha. He said, that's the only one for you people. Because if you try the other ones, you just get bent out of shape. You get hyper-strung out, tense, and so forth. So, no, you go mindfulness of breathing. So, nowadays too, then, if you, if you recognize yourself physiologically, temperamentally, as being wind-type, mindfulness of breathing may be really what the doctor ordered. Even if it's kind of a struggle, because you find it boring and so forth. Well, just inc- inc- increase the vividness, and it doesn't get boring. The more vivid you are, the less boring it becomes. It becomes interesting. It becomes, oh, it starts becoming an ambrosial state, a sublime state, like the Buddha spoke of. Now, some people, more earth element, water element, phlegm, humor, those people. Those people, you could lighten up a little bit, get some kinetic energy coming in. It's easy for these people to be lethargic, not very motivated, a bit heavy, a bit dull, ponderous, lethargic. How, how are you doing? Okay. They come in. How are you doing this week? Okay. How are you doing this week? Okay. Oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. I feel like I'm hearing a bullfrog. Oh, oh. <laughs> That's when I'm looking in my drawer. Where's a firecracker? I mean, I, I, I want something here. To, and, oh, how are you doing? I'm awake. What, 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 what? <laughs> and so, for those of us who on occasion, and again, there are different periods of the day, different periods of the year. The seasons. Some seasons more earth, water. Seasons more. Periods of the day more. So this is really subtle. Because it relates to the environment and not just your encapsulated body. But on those periods of the day, if you're feeling a bit more phlegm, earth and water, periods, seasons, maybe you're in an environment, oh, the tropics is all earth and water. Have you noticed? (laughs) Mud everywhere. Okay, that's earth and water. This is big time phlegm. That's why, oh, in climates like this, easy does it, you know. Easy does it, slowly, slowly. Pass the mango juice. <laughs> you, know, you, know. you don't, don't get a whole lot of hyper-duper, let's go out and conquer the world. Let's just let a, let a banana drop from the tree. <laughs> so this is phlegm country. That's why we have the air conditioning on so much. Try to counteract that a little bit. Bring in a little bit of oh, vata. So if you're more, if on occasion or by temperament, disposition, physiology, more to phlegm, then settling the mind can be just what the doctor ordered. It's interesting. 
It really is interesting. Very few people find it boring unless they just are terrible at it. That is, they're just caught up in one wandering thought after another. But you never know what's coming up. You know it well now. The thoughts, images, memories, I mean, surprise me. Whoop! You don't have to wait long. You know? And it's always, and it's disturbing. It's disturbing. I mean, the emotions, the memories, and so forth. It's not phlegmatic. It's not earth and, and, and earth and water. It's air. It's wind. That's why I call it balancing earth and wind, mindfulness of breathing, and settling the mind in its natural state. Why I give the analogy of the kestrel kiting into the wind, not into a mudslide. <laughs> you know, wind. And so, to balance out, if you're much more of the earth, the phlegm, the water, then settling the mind can be really just the balancing out, balancing out, and feel really, really good. So there's the wind, wind arising. And then likewise, another one that can be very good for people in the phlegm, a lot of water element, a lot of water element. Water element can make them very easy going. Water is fluid, it just goes whatever's easiest, you know, wherever there's like that. Water, water people are just very easy going, but can also be very complacent. And how's your practice doing? Oh, all four hours going really good. What are you doing for the rest of the day? I don't know. But it feels nice. I like being here. Oh, water. Blah, 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 blah. Right? Oh, down the drain. Yep. And so if it's a lot of water element, then what counteract that? How about some fire? Make that water boil. Get some steam coming up. Awareness of awareness. Awareness of awareness. That's where the fire is. The luminosity is. The luminosity is right there because the very nature of awareness, of course, it is luminosity. So, if you're more predominant in the water, the fire, the luminosity of awareness of awareness can be just what the doctor ordered. So, phlegm may be corresponding to mindfulness of breathing. Wind, settling the mind. Bile, corresponding to awareness of awareness. Heat, fire. Luminosity, brightness, right? But then you want to see how to balance them. Balance. There you go. All enough. That's enough. Find a comfortable position. As you're settling, and I will add a footnote. And that is tomorrow, don't let me forget, tomorrow when we start with the settling the mind in this natural state, there is a an auxiliary practice. I've, I've only seen it in one text, in all the texts that I've studied for that practice, from the Gulopa tradition, the Nyingma, and so on. Only one text, but it's a marvelous text, and that is this commentary by Lerap Lingba, on the Chetsu Nyingti, where in this practice he speaks of the gentle Vas breathing. So you've probably heard of it. I haven't taught it once for the last five weeks, so it's high time to introduce it, but this entails some gentle manipulation, that is, you are intervening, not with the flow of the breath, trying to make it longer or shorter or anything like that, but, as we'll see tomorrow, and so I won't elaborate today, but you are holding a certain fullness of the abdomen while letting the breath just flow in its natural rhythm. You're holding a fullness of the abdomen. And this is said by Lerab Lingba, who does speak with great authority, that by, by so doing, and then as soon as possible, letting that just go on autopilot. So you're not having to deliberately think, okay, when I breathe out, I'll hold the fullness. Just get used to it. It's like riding a bicycle. And as soon as you get used to it, you really don't have to think about it or really pay attention to it. You're just, just holding a little pot belly there. A nice, gentle little pot belly. About three months pregnant, I think. Something like 
bit. And it just holds there. So it expands a little bit when you breathe in, but falls back, but still rotundness, a pot shape, but very gentle. So we'll do that tomorrow. And what he says is by doing that, you may find that naturally from your first person perspective, the airs, the lung, oh, remember that? Navel chakra, remember? The lung may start converging right in there at the navel chakra and come into the central channel, and that will help to stabilize your mind. Okay? So once again, we're speaking of lung or prana, and by that fullness, it's almost like there's greater space there, so the, t- the entanglement, the knottedness of the nadis down there in this very complex chakra at the navel, or forefinger w- four width beneath the navel, or since there's more space, because you're simply holding a larger volume, they get to breathe a little bit more. The prana start coming into the center, and there you go. So it's a very gentle intervention. And it's not necessary, otherwise it would be taught in all the texts, but it can, for some people, be helpful. It's called the gentle vas breathing. The gentle vas breathing. In contrast to the robust, full-fledged lung bumbache, the pot breathing, I've been trained in that, and other, and I'm not accomplished at it at all, but I was trained in it. But that's macho. I mean, you really get good at that, and that is macho. That is extremely demanding. And you really want to start young to do that. Because especially if you're doing all the tungkor, the, um, adisadas, the physical exercises. Well, just watch the yogi, the movie Yogis of Tibet, and you'll see how that, how demanding that is. It entails, just for example, jumping straight up, about three or four feet above the ground, if you can make it, and while in midair, going into full lotus, and then coming down in full lotus. I know, I, I really encourage you not to do that. <laughs> she likes to show off, you know, but you know, not here, not here. Now, that's really for very young, very, very fit people. Men and women, it makes no difference. Gender is not an issue, but boy, you want to be fit for that. But that kind of practice, it's very much part and parcel of Dumo practice, uh, where you're doing these very strong breathing exercises and physical exercises, and the jumping, the leaping, the the bep, the bep chin, and so forth. That's very, very de- developmental. You are definitely introducing something major into the system, holding your breath, retracting here, moving here, and so forth. And then and then on top of that, oh, by the way, there's a very complex visualization doing. You do that simultaneously with all of the above. So this is a major intervention, major developmental approach. And it works. Man, oh man, does it work. If you're good at it, if you're accomplished, you'll be like then Dingo Kensington Rinpoche and so many of these other great adepts that, you know, you can be up at 5,000 meters through, you know, 30, to 30 below zero, and keep yourself just toasty warm and melt the snow around your cave. Okay, so it works. And when Herbert Benson, I mentioned this earlier, so now very briefly, but this research physician at Harvard, when he studied these people, both in uh, Tashijong, major, major yogi camp, and then up in Ladakh, and saw what, the, what, saw what they could do, and he f- filmed the whole thing, and I heard his commentary, uh, he said, we just have no way of understanding how this works medically. This makes no sense. A person holds their breath and does some funny exercises, and then you get this incredible heat that, that should boil their brains. I mean, the amount of heat generated, this should just give you brain death, that kind of heat. Well, they don't come out stupid, you know? So no, so inexplicable, off the charts. So this is breathing, this is prana, and lo and behold, it has an awful lot to do with that navel chakra. Big time, that's the heat one, right? So this is the same thing. So that kind of practice, this stage of completion practice, that's the more macho way, the young way, to get those energies into the central channel 
So they all come not only into the heart channel, heart chakra, but also into the indestructible bindu at the heart channel and then realizing the innate-minded clear light. Stage of completion practice, classic, right? Marvelous practice, no criticism. Classically developmental. And, not but, then you'll recall Dujon Ningba, His Holiness, and others saying, on the other hand, there's another way to get the all these energies coming into the central channel and into the indestructible bindu of the heart. And that is, that sounds so much nicer, let your body collapse like a corpse in the charnel ground, let your speech go silent like a lute on which the strings have been cut, and let your awareness, your mind, go completely inactive like space, and the energies will just naturally flow out of it. So which one do you like to do? <laughs> so there's classic discovery approach. Classic discovery approach. And they're both sublime. They both work. That's the deal. They both actually do work. But now, so that's all. I would say that's true. If we now come back to simple mindfulness of breathing, this foundational, foundational practice, the Buddha taught in the Pali Canon, it's the Mahayana, the Sanskrit, it's taught also in the Vajrayana. Various Vajrayana Tantras teach of mindfulness of breathing. It just strikes me that this way, that we're about to begin being totally and really radically non-manipulative, if the Dumo breathing, the, 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 the bandhas, the retention, the retraction, and all of that, if this is the type of breathing that is preparing you for realizing the innate mind of clear light by way of stage of completion, if one looked for a breathing practice that would be right in the same current as Dzogchen, it might be something like mindfulness of breathing, of just letting it be. Don't mess with it. Let the body sort itself out. Let the body balance itself out from breath to breath to breath. Let the energies naturally converge into the central channel. Let it be. Get out of the way, but be very attentive, very mindful, without grasping. Just be present. So even though I've never heard this said, I do believe in spirit, in the spirit of it, the whole ambience of mindfulness of breathing is very much in accordance with the ambience of Dzogchen, of just allowing it to balance itself out. Don't try to outsmart your body. Your body knows how to breathe better than you do. You know? And through that process, you take the first step along a path that will eventually be Dzogchen path, where it's all just occurring, rangbap, just naturally falling into place. So I think the spirit of it is very kind of Dzogchenish. That's my sense. That's just my speculation. Hola, so now, comfortable position. And with a footnote. <laughs> and that is if you do anything more than the gentle vas breathing. That one I can teach you and I can go home with a clear conscience that you won't harm, harm yourself. But if you ever learn out of a book, heaven forbid, the vas breathing as part of Dumo practice, I'll tell everybody, especially those living by podcasts, I really beseech you, don't try that on your own. The chances of damaging yourself are so high that it's a really, really bad idea. Don't even dream about it. Unless you just really want to destroy yourself. But, you know, I think maybe going on an alcoholic binge would be more fun. And you can still kill yourself that way. So the real Bumbachan, the Vas breathing, the Adesadas, the all of that, that is to be done under the guidance of a real master who knows what he or she is doing. 
If anything goes astray, that person can help you bring you right back in center. You don't try it on your own. You don't try it without supervision. It's really reckless. Whereas, mindfulness of breathing, without intervention as we're practicing here, oh, I feel very relaxed. I go home, you practice on your own, you should be fine. So that's it, because you're trusting your own body to balance itself out. You're not bringing in alien interventions, kind of forceful macho, monkeying with things, but rather stepping back and allowing the body to heal. So on that notion, that was the final footnote. Let's go into practice. And now we need very few words. So we begin with Dzogchen teachings, setting the right ambience. Of course, you know where we're going, settling the body, speech, and mind in their natural state. And to enhance the clarity, the acuity of awareness, elevate the focus of your attention and narrow the focus to this small target at the apertures of the nostrils or just above the upper lip. 
without visualizing or imagining. Just focus on the bare tactile sensations of the passage of the breath. And make a strong point. Check out periodically to see that your eyes are soft, your forehead spacious, all the muscles of the face loose and relaxed. That you're focusing only your mental awareness and not your visual awareness at all on this target area of the apertures of the nostrils. And whether the breath is short or long, with each inhalation gently arouse, focus, concentrate your attention, thereby overcoming laxity. With every out-breath, release, relax. Let go of any thoughts that may have arisen. Let go of that excess turbulent energy. In this way, remedy the attentional imbalance of laxity, of excitation, excitation. Experiment with counting the breaths, one brief count at the end of each inhalation, and see for yourself the extent to which this is helpful for gently subduing the obsessive compulsive flow of thinking, or the extent to which it may simply clutter your mind. Use it as needed. Monitor the flow of mindfulness with introspection, applying the appropriate remedies.
attend to the full body of the inhalation, the full body of exhalation, as your whole system gradually settles in a deeper and more and more even state of equilibrium. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
Well, that's all. I see no written questions today or comments. So any comments, observations, insights you'd like to share? Yes, we'll start with Christina. Uh, previously, you um, spoke about the two approaches, the discovery one and the development. Yes. The discovery from the point of view of the wisdom prajna and the uh, development from the point of view of the human. And also I, I didn't quite understand that. You say that uh, from the point of view of human... Uh, oh, yes, right, right. Then, yeah. Yes. And then... <coughs> And then you also mentioned the two um, different views, the two systems uh, connected with these uh, approaches. Right, so the, I will make a small correction. The Prasanjika view and the, the um, Svatantrika, I think, uh, the, the different one. Svatantrika. Two systems, tenets, uh, different yeah. in the Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah. And... Uh, um, in the book, uh, I think, Genuine Happiness, you say that these two approaches can be complementary. Yes, quite This so. is very good. And since you train in the Gelupa, uh, in different uh, schools, mm -hmm. uh, as for the Gelupa, they don't have the substrate consciousness, but still they have the Shamatha practice. Can you say something about these two different uh, Methods. Yeah, uh, certainly. And also a bit of clarification, and that is, and I give my source. Uh, this was from His Holiness Dalai Lama's teachings on Dzogchen that he gave, I believe, in San Jose. He's given two big teachings that turned into books. As I recall, this was in the earlier teaching. It must have been about 10, 15 years ago. I was there in San Jose. Uh, when he cited one great Sakya, Pandit, uh, not Sakya Pandita, but another great Sakya, Adept, uh, commenting on the complementarity of the approach of the Gelupa, which, using modern terminology, we'd say is largely, and not 100%, developmental, of viewing the whole path, not just from a human perspective, but from the perspective of a sentient being, where we identify ourselves as being, I am a deluded sentient being with mental afflictions, a lot of bad karma, I'm caught in the cycle of existence, and I want out. And that's who I am. And I, and I have a Buddha nature. I have the potential to get out. And therefore, I want to get out. And the question is, what can I do? That's the leading question. And then the stage is set for a developmental approach uh, to gaining liberation for a person who is not liberated. Right. So that, that perspective is one that's very much incorporated into the teachings in the Galupa tradition. Uh, and His Holiness is making this comment, and this is one very much one that Tsongkhaba himself adopted, not that he was some lowly creature, that he was a sentient being and couldn't imagine what it would like to be a Buddha, but in his skillful means, this is the approach that he emphasized, the Lam Rim, the stages of path of the, of the you know, the Sutrayana, the Nak Rim, the stages of path of, of Mantrayana, very developmental, right? At the same time, it should be noted, and I can give the source for this, that Tsongkhaba himself was introduced to, received instructions on Dzogchen from, a, from an accomplished Dzogchen master. Um, and having received them, and this person, this Dzogchen master, had direct vision of Vajrapani and gave Tsongkhapa teachings from Vajrapani, he channeled it on Dzogchen. So that, that's part of, uh, you can find this in Tsongkhapa's own biography, uh, the large one. 
And having received the teachings on Dzogchen, then Songkhul's response was, oh, This is complete and unmistaken. And nothing more to say. This is a perfect system. I have nothing more to add. And then he went on and did what he needed to do. Right? So it is a mistake to think that somehow Dzogchen is incompatible with the Gulupa teachings when Songkhul himself said, these are Tsanglama Norva, complete and unerring. So, so there's that. And that's a very, very developmental where the starting point is, I'm a deluded sentient being, I'm a samsaric being, I'm not a Buddha, I look in my mind, I don't see any Buddha qualities at all. I see no infinite compassion, no infinite wisdom, and I haven't perfected any of the six perfections, I do have a lot of mental afflictions, there's no part of me that is a Buddha, but I do have the capacity to be a Buddha, that's my Buddha nature. So there's a de- developmental stance. And then this, citing His Holiness, citing the Sakya Master, said, then Longjian Rapjamba, so a Tsongkhapa-like figure for the Nyingma tradition, tremendous scholar, great adept, then he, in his skillful means, presents the path, as it were, from the perspective of a Buddha, where we are already enlightened, the Dharmakaya is already present. It's veiled. And so the question is, what can I stop doing to perpetuate the veiling of my own Buddha mind, not just a capacity, but a reality? What can I stop doing to perpetuate the veiling, the obscuring of my own Buddha nature, my own pristine awareness? And so, then, well, you can stop rumination, you can stop excitation, you can stop, you know, and you can stop reifying and so forth and so on. So that would be a matter more a matter of discovering the, the Dharmakaya, which is already present in your being, rather than having simply a potential that needs to be developed. So His Holiness, citing the Sakya Master, said these two are complementary. They both are valid perspectives, but they're very different. They are very different. And having said that, uh, sooner or later, sooner or later, on the developmental path, like up in stage of completion, you receive something called the name empowerment, or the word empowerment. Well, that's very discovery. There's really not much to do. So it's like that dot in a yin-yang symbol. Even if you're following a very developmental approach, there is a point where it just has to be discovery. And having said that, if you should interview, I would say any, I mean, my speculation would be any Dzogchen master, anywhere, Tibet, Bhutan, Sikkim, anywhere, India, and say, oh, do you do any practice of stage regeneration? Do you any any stage of completion? Do you do, do you engage in the developmental practices of really reflecting upon the four thoughts that turn the mind? Do you develop bodhicitta? Are you taking refuge? Do you, do you do anything to enlightenment? Or are you just not doing everything? And I think you'd have a hard time finding even one that said, oh, I only do jokes in, none of that other stuff for me. I'm beyond that. I don't think you'd find either, either one, anyone, not even one. And so, even if one's practice is overwhelmingly oriented towards Dzogchen, it is bound to be augmented, enriched, with prayers to the Lama, with the cultivation of bodhicitta, renunciation, and so forth and so on, probably some stage of generation practice, maybe some stage of completion, is going to be there also. But the ambience, the overall framework, is the Dzogchen framework. Whereas the framework for the other one is overall the framework, you're a sentient being, but this is how you can stop being one and become awakened. Okay? Is that sufficient? Or is there something missing? No, I was wondering about the practice of shamatha 
without the substrate consciousness, ah, since yeah, you, they only posit the mental consciousness, right? Yeah, Which yeah. becomes subtle and subtle and subtle, but they don't have this because I think you also say that the danger of reification, right? I, I didn't. I, I missed that. <coughs> just the la just the last sentence. The, the danger of reification, reification yes. in in uh, the view of the substrate consciousness, right, you know, right. like in the quite the, so. the uh, quite so. affirming, affirming negative, like the absolute yeah. truth, you know. Quite so, quite so, yes. So now we're speaking philosophically. I would say with a lot of confidence, and of course I can speak very confidently and still be wrong, but I will still speak with a lot of confidence, saying that in my in my assertion that, oh, what a an accomplished Nyemapa yogi realizes, having settled the mind in its natural state, and then calling the kunjanamshi or substrate consciousness, what that yogi is experiencing, and calling substrate consciousness, is exactly what a gulupa yogi experiences, having achieved shamatha. And which, and then calling the continuum of consciousness that still lingers after having achieved shamatha, calling it subtle continuum of mental consciousness. What I'm saying is, one is calling it subtle continuum of mental consciousness, another one's calling it substrate consciousness, and these are two words referring to exactly the same thing. And I, I would then call in, to even be more bold, that when a Theravada practitioner practices mindful breathing or any other effective shamatha method, and achieves access to the first jhana, and the mind settles into a subtle dimension of awareness, that person calls it bhavanga. Bhavanga. And I would say, even though the interpretations, the way of placing it into a conceptual framework, have subtle variations in the Theravada, the Galupa, the Nyingma, I would plant my staff and say, here's where I stand. There, the experience is the same. When they come out of the experience, one coming from Avadhamma, the Pali Canon, and so forth, the other one coming from Prasangika Madhyamaka, probably trained in all the four philosophical schools, and many of the Nyingmapas never even look at the four philosophical schools. They may, some, they're superb scholars, Lama Mipamarambache, and so forth and so on, they're great scholars, but a lot of them, we don't need that. We're practicing Dzogchen, and this is quite sufficient, it's all-encompassing. Right? So, Having studied quite in some detail the Dzogchen accounts of the substrate consciousness, and having the first 20 years of my training being really overwhelmingly Galupa, I see nothing there that is ready to be refuted, or deserving of be, being refuted, in the Dzogchen accounts of substrate consciousness. I see nothing to be refuted from the Prasangika Madhyamaka view. If you look at the Yogacara interpretations and conceptual elaborations, philosophical presentation of Alayavijnana, substrate consciousness. Oh, then there's plenty to refute. Because they are assuming that the mind is inherently existent. It does not depend upon conceptual designation. It is yongdup, this, you know, the non-dual mind. It is yongdup, it's thoroughly established phenomenon. And it does not depend upon conceptual designation for that flow of consciousness. Right? Well, that's what Prasangika says, well, You've seen the lack of inherent nature, you've seen the lack of objectivity of the objective world, that it's not really out there independent of mind, but now you're reifying mind. Right. So when it becomes philosophically formulated in that way by the Yogacara or Chittamatra schools, 
Then the Prasanga Kamajamaka says, well, you've gone too far. You're reifying the mind. You're reifying the substrate consciousness. Therefore, since you're presenting the substrate consciousness as something inherently existent, and you've got all these philosophical elaborations about it, we just find this is more of a burden than we need to bear. The substrate consciousness doesn't exist. But then if you ask that same Prasangika Madhyamika, well, what, exp- what dimension of consciousness are you experiencing? When your coarse mind dissolves, you've achieved shamatha, and you're resting there, what lingers? You didn't become unconscious, what lingers? It's not the coarse mind, it's dissolved. And the Prasangika Madhyamika would say, oh, subtle continuum of mental consciousness. And what carries on from lifetime to lifetime? Subtle continuum of mental consciousness. What does the Dzogchenpa say? What carries on substrate consciousness? So, and then, what lingers when you fall deep asleep? Subtle continuum of mental consciousness. What lingers when you fall deep asleep? Substrate consciousness. What is the final point when you hit the dark near attainment in the dying process? Subtle continuum of mental consciousness. Substrate consciousness. So, by the context and the bhavanga, what lingers when you fall into deep dreamless sleep? Bhavanga. What, what is, what remains when you are dead? Bhavanga. So I'm seeing, hey, there's, there are enough, enough commonalities here that even though the description of Bhavanga in the Theravada tradition is not equivalent to the description of substrate consciousness in the Dzogchen, not equivalent to description of subtle continuum mental consciousness in the Galupa, there's so much common ground that I would say the differences are more on the conceptual and philosophical level. Whereas experientially, it's total convergence. That's my position. And I could be wrong, but, I, but nobody show me I'm wrong yet. So here I stand. Okay? Good. Yeah. This would be, I mean, it would be really marvelous, and it may happen, that there would be a contemplative research facility where we would have, actually there's something brewing in this regard, um, where we'd have in the same place Gelu, Sakya, Kagyu, Nyingma. Monks, nuns, lay people also, if they're very dedicated, pure, pure, good renunciation. Meditating in the same place, practicing and achieving shamatha, practicing and achieving vipassana, each drawing on their own unique lineages, traditions, teachings, methods, having in the same place. I don't know that that's ever happened before. But it would really be a healthy thing. And so when we have these accomplished yogis and yoginis in the same place, each following their own tradition, if they want to borrow a little bit, that's their choice. But following their own tradition, each one is quite sufficient. You can be a Sakyapa and go all the way to Buddhahood, Nyingmapa all the way. I mean, each one is completely sufficient by itself, doesn't need the others, right? What would be marvelous then is to have accomplished yogis who have achieved shamatha. And why, why not invite some Theravada monks and nuns in, you know? And let them achieve shamatha. So we have Theravadans, we have people from different traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. And then let them speak out of their own experience. Now, Penchen Losan Chugigyansen, in his text, his root text and commentary, on the union of the Kagyu and Gelupa tradition of Mahmudra, what does he say? He says there are these multiple traditions, Jonamba and this tradition, and Dzogchambas and the Majimikas and so forth. And I'm paraphrasing him, but... Stand as my witness, check it out and see whether I'm misparaphrasing him. He said, although there are these differences among the great scholars of these different traditions and many, many differences, among those who have the taste of meditative experience, they see they converge on one. Now that's by one of the greatest scholars and contemplatives of the Galupa tradition. Experientially, there's a deep convergence. And I think there's really good reason to believe that. 
the Gulupis very, are very keen, for example, on refuting Zhentong, other emptiness. They say, oh, that's wrong, completely wrong. And I've studied Tsongkhapana, very sharp reasons, refuting Zhentong. Such a big mistake, you know? Rangdong, you must go self-emptiness, self-emptiness. This is, this is the real meaning of Nagarjuna and Chantikirti. Very sharp. And then Lama Mipamunamiji comes back. Tsongkhapa is completely wrong. Zhentong is much better. Jonamba say, all those Golupras are completely off track. Zhendong is away. We are rooted in Kala Chakra. Trump that one, if you will. We have a royal flush. Kala Chakra, royal flush. You, you show me your cards. Got better than a royal flush? I doubt it. You know? So they're all refuting each other, having a great time, laughing their heads off. I wish I'd been there. You know, in that place up in, up in uh, what was it? in Asam Maribe. Where all the, uh, all the geishis, all the monks. What was the place called? Well, they all gathered for a couple of a few years. Wait, or, or East 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 Bengal, Baksa. Oh, Baksa, Baksa. Oh, I wish I'd been there. Yatra Rinpoche was there. Geshe Rapnen was there. Geshe Ngamantaji was there. Zon Rinpoche was there. Golupa, Kagyu, Nyemasaki, they were all there in one place. This great cauldron of yogis and monks and nuns and great scholars, all in one place. It was really quite incredible. It was physically terrible. But these great yogis and adepts all in one place. Why? So, in the end, they would debate with each other. They would debate with each other. They'd have really fun. They'd really have fun. It is fun. If you enjoy that kind of thing, it's fun. Hmm. But then when it comes to experience, after you've sharpened your wits and gained a much clearer conceptual understanding through the debate, then Geshe Rapten, from whom he really inspired me to follow that track for some time, he said, you know, and he was such an expert debater, he was really quite awesome, he was really, really outstanding debater. He could crush most people. But he said, after the debate, something is often overlooked, after the debate, then it's time to withdraw into your chambers, into your cell, and now let it sink in, go into meditation. That's where the depth is. The ones who are just in debate, they debate, 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 and then they'd run back to the books to be to be sharper in the next debate. So this is going from book to debate, book to debate. Get shut up and go to debate, to meditation. Then go out to debate again. That's balanced. That's really balanced. So on that level, I think really deep convergence. Ah, and then there's good reason. So the Gulupas refuting the Jonambas, Jonambas refuting the Gulupas. On the one hand, on the other hand, if you look in the history of the Gulupa tradition, oh, so many incredible adepts, you know, demonstrating their abilities, incredible abilities, and demonstrating profound states of realization. And they're doing the rangdong, the self, self-emptying, right? Then the John numbers. Just recently, over the last 10, 15 years, something like that, at the major Jonamba monastery in Tibet called Zamtang, I got very close and then the police turned me away, I couldn't go. But I got very close, 20 kilometers away. And then they said, get out of town by sunset. Because we didn't have some permit. Oh, actually we did. He was just uptight. Some policeman. But in this this great, there's the mother monastery with the whole Jodong tradition. Just recently, the Vajracharya there, the, the Vajrayana master, when he passed away, his body shrank way down. Size of a child. By all reckoning, Galupa, Nyimaka, Gyusakya, all of them say, oh, if you can demonstrate that, once you die, your body shrinks down to the size of a doll, and all the proportions still there. 
He said, oh, then you're very, very highly accomplished on stage of completion. There's no way you can do that. Unless you're very, very deeply resolved. Very highly accomplished. State of completion. Even if you're not a Buddha yet, you're really close. You know, not quite rainbow body. Oh, but you left only that much left. That was how, that's how much matter was left. You hadn't quite finished it off yet. You know, well, that's, but what are they following? They're following gentong. They're following other emptiness. That which the Galupas are refuting. So how bad could it be? You know, and so many of the great Nyingma masters, they're also following gentong and achieving rainbow body. How, can, how bad could it be? Was it kind of like a, you know, a shadowy rainbow body? Not quite, you know, maybe only had four colors instead of five? I don't think so. So, it's really healthy. It's really healthy that there's that diversity of views and the debating, the quickening, the livening, the multiple perspectives that come through the intellectual inquiry and the presentation of philosophical systems. It's very healthy. But when all is said and done, I'll just end on a note from Yishadapten. He gave teaching a long time ago. He lived up in the mountains in retreat. But on one occasion, at least, he came down to the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. He was invited down. The yogi from the mountain came down. And I remember I was there. And he referred to the different differences in views and philosophical systems among the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. He said, well, there are these differences of views. But it's like one piece of gold that in the, in the hands of one craftsman it's shaped in this form. And then take the same piece of gold and now it takes this form and this form. So, so we have four forms and four different traditions. Gelu, Sake, Gagyu, Nyingma. So different forms. But they're all made out of gold. Melt them down and it's all the same. So pragmatically, all that really matters to my mind, and I think Yisharapin's mind and His Holiness's mind, do they work? Do they purify the mind? Dispel mental afflictions, obscurations, lead to enlightenment. That's all that matters. And I think there's very strong evidence. All four. Alive and well. Oh, that's all. It's all good. So, celebrating diversity, it's really a good thing that we don't have a, a, I won't say that word, but that we don't have an autocratic head of Tibetan Buddhism that's enforcing homogeneity, that we have one creed, everybody has to follow, whether it's Galupa, okay, all Galupa, everybody has to be Galupa, otherwise we, you know, punish you. Never has been, doesn't look like ever will be. No insistence on uniformity. That's good. That's good. Because we're not all the same person. Different dispositions need different kind of teachings. So that's that. Enjoy evening. See you tomorrow.